0: You're listening to a podcast from Blogging Heads TV.
1: Hi, welcome to Blogging Heads TV. This is Arya cohen and I'm your host today for another edition of Culturally Determined. And my guest today is Daniel Bessner. Uh, Daniel, could you introduce yourself?
0: Uh sure. Hi, I'm uh Daniel Bestner. I'm the uh, NHH and Kenneth B. Pyle, assistant professor in American foreign policy in the Henry M. Jackson School of International Studies at the University of Washington.
1: Cool. That's that's quite a mouthful. Um <laughs> Yeah. It's a name. <laughs> uh yeah, but having a having a neighbor professorship, I'm sure, is uh is not an easy uh thing to accomplish at such a young age. Um yeah. but yeah, let's um <laughs> and we might be talking about some things related to age and generations later on in this conversation. Uh we're going to try to sure. hit a couple different topics some in the news some maybe a little more uh big picture kind of stuff. So the, but the first one is uh, uh in the news from the past couple of weeks everyone has heard about it the college admissions fraud scandal. Uh, I don't I don't think I need to summarize it. Um but what what, what how, how do you think like what was your first reaction when this happened and how, how do you think as it's like played out?
0: Well, I think my first reaction and, and and probably this is repeating what many people say is that this is just, you know, an, an illegal representation of a process that already goes on already with the elite donors like uh, Kushner's father, Jared Kushner's father, you know, buying buildings, getting him into college, uh, et cetera, et cetera. But but to maybe say what what, what isn't as much. Said, and this is something that I really only appreciated when I began teaching at the University of Washington. Is is beyond the the fact of the social reproduction and the status reproductions that necessarily go into the process of elite college admissions. I think it also represents a cultural problem where where many students who, for example, either don't have the money to go to these rich schools, let alone bribe people to get into them, or 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 for some reason don't have the the cultural uh the cultural cachet or the or the basically growing up experience to get into them, basically view them themselves as inferior to the people who get into these schools. And, and it's interesting when it relates to meritocracy because meritocracy has been such a governing logic of American public life since 1945. Um, and I just want to emphasize that that in its original in, in, incarnation, there was actually a pretty good reason for meritocracy in the sense that a lot of ethnic and racial minorities, uh, most famously uh, Jews and African-Americans, weren't actually let into a lot of these elite colleges before World War II. And the logic of meritocracy was one of the re- uh, one of the ways in which they were able to enter places Like Harvard and Yale, which, for example, didn't tenure its first Jewish professor until 1946. Um, So this logic has been governing for a long time. But I I think it's important also to note that many people who don't benefit from meritocracy nevertheless believe in it. So, for example, a, a lot of my own very brilliant students think that they are themselves inferior Literally inferior to people who get into these top colleges. And I've had, I have several conversations with students who as I, I went, uh, you know, I'm, I'm very much like you, a product of meritocracy. I, I did my undergraduate degree at Columbia and my graduate degree at Duke. And I have a lot of experience with these people. And I, I have my own students who, who really do feel themselves uh, inferior to people who go to these quote unquote elite universities. Uh, and I, one of my, one of the things that I try to do as a professor is make them realize that no, they're actually as smart or if not more smart in, in many cases than the people who go to these uh universities but it's really interesting to see if this will actually give a blow uh to meritocracy in a meaningful sense going forward and then the question is what replaces meritocracy as a guiding logic uh, of american public life and american basically american uh, social hierarchy
1: okay that's interesting um yeah so like like you said um, i went to an Ivy League school, uh, Yale University, at which just within the past 48 hours, they announced that the one student who was admitted, uh, you know, admitted fraudulently by this, uh, guy who was running the scam to the soccer team, uh, what her, uh, acceptance was rescinded and I assume she has to leave campus. And, and it seems like, um, some of these students didn't know that their parents were doing this on their behalf. So you kind of have to feel bad for these students who were, you know, <laughs> manipulated by their like crazed parents and thought they were good enough quote unquote, to uh to get into an elite school and right. and then finding out that they aren't and in some cases becoming like laughing socks like the um uh daughter of Lori Laughlin um who's like a Instagram influencer apparently and um you know some of her uh videos were make, making the rounds and people were making making fun of a really
0: you know yeah o- Olivia Jade who has a huge OJ sign in every one of her her videos just shows that Gen Z doesn't know the 90s <laughs> that
1: yeah that, that's, that's funny um yeah but she um i mean what's fun i mean there's so many places you go with this but just on her in particular it's like if you're the daughter, okay, Lori Loughlin's not like a superstar, like she was, I, I actually had a huge crush on her, um, back in the late 80s, early 90s, because she was Aunt Becky on, on Full House. Um, but since then she hasn't really done a lot, but you know, she's an affluent person and she could afford to pay $20,000 to this, this, uh, guy to get her, uh, daughter into USC, but the daughter has a million, um, like followers on Instagram or something along those lines. And is like a spokesperson in some respect or is getting like sponsored by uh, cosmetics brands and things and things like that so you know she is talented and attractive enough to participate in this like newly created economy of the influencer and so it's kind of funny like why and and has uh, parents of means just you know even though they're not you know billionaires although um, actually I think her uh, Lori Laughlin's husband is the founder of Massimo clothing company
0: if you yeah. remember that from the
1: yeah. 90s so it's a real it's a real yeah. You know, hey, remember Massimo the 90s. and
0: Stussy? Yeah, <laughs>
1: yeah, throwback kind of thing. Um, so maybe, yeah, so maybe they do have like you know twenty million dollars in the bank, and you know she'll be fine wherever she goes to college, more or less. Like as long as she doesn't get like addicted to drugs or something. Like she, her, she, her, she's an attractive white person, um, who has a million Instagram followers. Like she's gonna be fine. So it's like curious to think like why, um, the parents decided that she needed to go to USC instead of like. UC Davis, or something, or some other, you know, some lesser ranked school in the US News Report. Um, and w- so much so that they're willing to like break the law to do it. Um, so, yeah, so yeah so it, it, must
0: be, it must be social hierarchy, right? Because people like uh, Olivia Jade are not worried about slipping into the middle or working classes. So it must be, I think, an accoutrement. Right. It must be a social status symbol primarily for at least people like Lori Laughlin and Mr. Massimo. Um, but but so it's interesting. There's probably if one were to, to differentiate between the various parents who participated in it. I imagine for some of them, there actually it must be some worry about their children sort of not being reproduced into the social hierarchy. But for Felicity Huffman or Lori Laughlin, it must have just been a status symbol. Right. I mean, I can't imagine what else it could possibly be. They want to say that their daughter was able to get into USC or, or Yale or Harvard or, or whatever the case may yeah, be. So I suppose that's part of it.
1: And, you know, people of, uh, you know, if not just the Hollywood elite or Hollywood C-list who participate in the status said a similar stuff. Um, you know, uh, my mom put a Yale bumper sticker on her car after I got accepted oh, into sure, Yale. Yeah. And this, I grew up in a free middle class, uh, town. So yeah, this, it is like a, you know, the first, uh, you know, the first like major life accomplishment that your beloved child, uh, can do that you can kind of brag to everyone.
0: Um, well, I, I just related to that, a quick, a quick, a quick interjection. I think it also relates to this rise of a certain philosophy of parenting where kids are, are basically considered to be some sort of status symbol for yourself, a product that, that you yourself, uh, you yourself raise, right? And then one, one could probably uh, relate this to the larger sort of idea of consumer capitalism and neoliberalism that permeates American society where children don't go to college to, to be educated necessarily or to enrich themselves, but are rather viewed as products of their, uh, 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 rather viewed by their parents as, as products, things that, that, that they could use, uh, to show around, which, which de- again, I think does reflect a particular philosophy of parenting that wasn't necessarily always there in, in American society where, for a, a kid could be considered good if, if they did something, you know, worthwhile, not necessarily just, just got this status symbol. So I think it's also related to the idea of children, a child as a product which is which is which is very unique and historically contingent in the last 30 40 years of american history.
1: Right. Although okay, so if we um yeah, so there's the like brand like you can like you my mom literally branded the word yale <laughs> on her car in sticker form. Um and there's so that there's that aspect of it. Um but you know, a 100 years ago if um you know Theodore Roosevelt's son didn't get accepted to Harvard what would he what would Theodore Roosevelt do he would probably just send a telegram to the president of Harvard and say you know I think you've made a mistake here could you pull a few strings and uh you know uh, Teddy Jr or whoever it was would be <laughs> would be admitted to Harvard um so the you know and the, there's the legacy admissions um so that you know that has played out this is just like a more capitalized form of what used to happen where it used to be like, they, you know, I assume a hundred years ago, the, whoever, you know, the small, there's probably just a couple of people doing admissions at these schools. They would just like, look at the list and say, Oh, this person, you know, we, we know they're in the Mayflower, or their parents are in the Mayflower society and we'll let them in. And maybe we'll let in a few like strivers <laughs> from the lower, lower side, but not too many. And, um, you know, and, and that's that. So yeah, it wasn't yeah. the, the idea that these were like the most brilliant, talented, Children in the country didn't, is like a relatively modern, uh, you know, idea that, that, that we've come up with.
0: Um, well, it's it's a post World War II thing. So just to give a little bit of context to it, I think the World War II experience is really critical because it brought so many people from previously marginalized groups into the American state and the American elite. And so the fact of this emergency situation, I mean, just to put to put a fine point on it, brought a bunch of Jews who would have never been in, for example, the State Department or the OSS or the OWI previously to the emergency of World War II into these elite power spheres, and that eventually permeated out into I think the university system as a whole into this larger transformation and. American culture to where meritocracy, as opposed to birth rate, uh, or sorry, not birth rate, uh, sort of uh, birthright, <laughs> uh, yeah, and uh, birthright began to began to become a new logic of American uh, American society. So it's in some sense it's just bourgeois oligarchy replacing aristocratic oligarchy. Even uh-huh. though it's important to emphasize that the aristocratic oligarchy is still there. I, for example, I believe Megan McCain was in the year behind me at at, at Columbia. Right, and and that's not a bourgeois thing. That's a you know American blue blood uh, aristocratic thing uh, going on.
1: Um, I don't know what you're talking about because she's obviously a talented woman. She appears on the View every day. Um, you know, clearly a woman of uh, achievement. Um, okay, so okay, so there's an angle to this I think has been somewhat undercovered, strangely because it's like one of the central points of this, which is that. In almost all cases, so part of the sometimes the fraud was they would hire someone to go take the SATs or whatever for for, for the students. So that's like you know that probably happened before. But the um, part of the fraud was uh, bribing coaches at, at colleges in order to use some of their number of like um, you know they 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 get to pick a certain number of students every year. And um, so those – so the coaches were bribed. Um, the report, it's reported that at Yale it was $1.2 million to bribe the women's soccer coach uh, to let in the student who has now been kicked out. Um, and they – and this, the student had, you know, no actual um, athletic talent. Uh, sometimes they were uh, – a kind of fake resume was created showing them, like, at the rowing machine or something if they were bribing the crew – Person or running through the field if, if the uh, soccer coach was being bribed and, uh, then they, they got to campus and, uh, seemingly none the wiser. Maybe they were like, Hey, are you going to show up for practice? And they're like, you must have had some mistake. And then it was kind of forgotten about. Um, so, you know, in the Ivy League and in some other elite colleges, there aren't, um, you don't get a scholarship for um, playing on the basketball or football team like you do at like a big state school um, because they don't allow that for whatever reason, but you can get, you can get admission. if, if you can afford it or go through the normal, um, like a, you know, tuition aid process, um, you can get in. And since you went to an Ivy league school and I went to an Ivy league school, maybe we had a similar experience. Um, there are a lot of, of recruited athletes in each class, the number I heard for my class at Yale in class of 2005 was uh, one in six uh, was was a recruited athlete. Um, so that's pretty crazy. So that's like 18 percent or so of right. of each class is recruited to play sports. Uh, some people don't know this. I saw this on Twitter. Uh, you know, the Ivy League schools play like a lot of sports. Like there's probably like 35 teams at least and right. men's and women's. Um there's a diving team, there's there's a crew team. I think there's a water polo team. Um in addition to some of the more popular sports. Um you know, there's a squash team. A guy who lived across from me uh, freshman year was recruited to the squash team. I one of my sweetmates was on the baseball team. Um so if you go, so if you <laughs> go to one of these schools, you realize pretty quickly that there's a different level of academic preparation or whatever you want to call it between the students who are recruited to be athletes and the ones who get in through the normal channels as far as we know. Uh, and- well, I would
0: also just add, add to that the point you're making is that there's nothing as disabusing with regards meritocracy as actually going to an Ivy League school. Uh, I, I wouldn't necessarily want to single out athletes, but what I found is that a lot of the people that I knew were really good at getting A's in high school. And really good at pleasing teachers primarily, like that, that was the thing that made, that made them ready for, for, for Columbia or a particular Ivy League school, right? It wasn't necessarily uh, intellectual interest or, or uh, intellectual. I don't want to say capacity because what does that really mean? But I would say like they weren't necessarily interested in, 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 in ideas or learning, but they were really interested in getting good grades. So it's also the, the ways in which meritocracy informed what type of, of people are, are admitted to the, you know, the upper echelons of the American elite, right? And I'm sure some historian in 50 years will be able to go back and see like how the, this particular culture of meritocracy informed everything from, you know, who leads our financial institutions to who leads the government to who leads our cultural institutions, right? And what does it mean that people who are really good at pleasing a particular set of high school teachers were then admitted into the American elite? right i think this is this is a, this is a particularly uh, interesting problem and an interesting issue that i think would would require uh more investigation and and so i mean many many of the athletes that i knew were actually in some sense even if they weren't as good at getting a's in high school they were actually more intellectually interesting in, in a way that they were trying to take advantage of the, the this unique opportunity because let's say they were really good at basketball uh, or good enough to get go on the columbia basketball team or the columbia football team they knew they were never going to play pro but they were actually taking advantage of, of the of the opportunities afforded by their ivy league education as opposed to the kids you know who are the sons of the upper middle class but really let's admit just the sons of the wealthy uh and daughters of the wealthy who who were trying uh who who, you know were really good at pleasing teachers but were not necessarily so intellectually interested
1: um okay so yeah we're going along um you know like anecdotes now but i'll i'll just say from uh from my perspective you know so you know there's a lot of different students um the at Yale the um football and uh baseball team in particular were kind of like the you know, like classic jock kind of guys. And they were right. all in um the all rush Deke, which is the uh frat <laughs> right. DKE, right? Yeah. Right. The frat that yeah. has many illustrious members including George H. W. Bush, George W. Bush, and Brett Kavanaugh. Um <laughs> this is the Yale DEEK, by the way. Um so yeah, so and they yeah, so that was like the cla- the the more the most like Not Animal House because they weren't like a group of um, lovable losers kind of thing. But like, you know, they would throw like the rager parties and stuff like that. I don't – and the other thing is a lot of them would be um, econ majors because the normal major you had to be – you had to take uh, 12 or 14 credits in the the major. Um, And econ you only had to take 10. And they also all wanted to, you know, like go be rich or, or work on Wall Street or something. So, so right, right, it, was, right, it was weird that like, uh, econ was like the joke major at Yale that all the, all the jocks took. And whereas, you know, in some other schools, it's probably, uh, has more of a like illustrious sense about it. But I think the, the comparison I want to make here is, uh, the, uh, you know, constantly going, uh, never ending debate about affirmative action. Um, on blogging mm-hmm. heads, Glenn Lowry discusses this a lot. Um, uh, right. but without making the connection to the fact that, A large number of students are admitted not for their academic – like, you need to meet meet some kind of, like, minimum academic standard. And after that, the coach picks them. And that's right, pretty fucked course. up if yeah. we're thinking about what these schools are supposed to
0: do. And I'm
1: not well, even they, getting into the legacy it. part of it. Yeah. Like, what well, is it's
0: it? ridiculous? They, they don't they don't do it in any meaningful sense. And, and and what I would what what I would ask Glenn, who who I respect and have listened to for for over a decade now. Wow, Jesus, um, <laughs> is why is the conversation only around African American students as opposed to legacies uh, or athletes or frankly just rich people? You know, that, to me, you have to put the conversation around affirmative action in a larger cultural context and namely in the cultural context of insatiable American racism that has defined the country from the very beginning. And this is just the latest instantiation of that, that, that to me, it seems like that's a much better explanation for why the conversation uh, around affirmative action has focused on African-Americans uh, as opposed to these other groups who you just very rightfully, I think, mentioned.
1: Right, and I, you know, I'm trying to recall. I, I can't recall a time in my uh four years in college where I, or I was talking to someone who I thought could have been like a beneficiary of affirmative action, and somehow thought they shouldn't have been there through their lack of qualifications. Well, I can't think of a, a number of times that I um was, uh, you know, exposed to someone who was a recruited athlete and felt like. You know, they were only there because they were really good at volleyball or something. Let me just tell one more story. And there's a link. There's a link to this. Um, the, the Yale alumni magazine used to be, um, independently published, not, not connected to the university. So they would, so a couple of years ago, they, they were absorbed by the university, but they used to do more, uh, stories that were like actual investigative stories and could actually show the, the university in a negative light. And they did a story about this guy. Who happened to be my Spanish partner, um, my senior year. Uh, he was recruited to be the quarterback of the football team. Um, he suffered a bad injury, uh, shortly before freshman year. And then he suffered a series of additional injuries such that he never actually played a single, a single point in all of his four years. Um, he was this very nice guy. You know, we did our Spanish practice together. Um, forgot about him after graduating like five or so years later. I saw that there was an article about him um, and that he and his brother had invented this um, wristband. Facebook. <laughs> no, it was not. It was not Mark Zuckerberg. But it, it had – okay, less damage, more fraud. Um, <laughs> do you remember these wristbands that had a little hologram on them and they were marketed to athletes? Yeah, I do. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. He invented that with his brother. Um, and the idea was that the hologram like vibrated on a certain frequency that aligned with the atoms in your body or something along those lines or okay, maybe so
0: junk science. Yeah. Yes.
1: Yeah, so this, this thing was, was total nonsense, but he started a very, it became very successful. He was able, he was from California. He was able to get some guys, um, in professional sports in California to start wearing it. He eventually got Kobe Bryant to start wearing one. And was making so much money at one point that, like, they were thinking about, like, renaming, like, a, you know, the, the company, I can't remember what the company was called, but, like, renaming, like, the Sacramento King Stadium or something, like, any naming rights for it or something along those lines oh that fell God. through. But it, what happened, and so this, you know, article was like, well, it never, it doesn't really seem to do anything at all or have any science whatsoever behind it. Um, and then I think people, since it, like, wasn't a real... I, I was at a local, um, fair in Rochester about five years ago, and I saw some woman selling these, like her own version of these, and she did the same thing that, like, showed you, like, this little weird trick to sh- try to make you think that your balance would be increased if you were wearing this hologram bracelet, um, that, that the guy, uh, my former Spanish partner used to do, you know, with his, when, when he was, like, pitching this to professional athletes. So that, that, that was, that was probably part of it, too, was that, like, you know, anyone can make this piece of trash in China and start like selling it on the street. Um, but it just, I mean, there were so many weird (laughs) things about this story. The fact that I knew this guy, very nice guy, you know, would not have thought he would be perpetrating some sort of scam, uh, (laughs) on the public. And then he got into Yale for his football, which he never actually played at all. Yeah. So it just like, (laughs) one example, one type of person who was recruited as a Yale athlete, um, you know who else? Who else is out there? Most of them probably go to work on you know Wall Street. <laughs> sure, I mean, others. I mean,
0: I think just w- w- what we're saying. I think just from a variety of different perspectives that meritocracy is essentially is essentially bullshit. And what I think will be interesting going forward, I think more and more Americans, particularly um people, I would say under thirty five. 40-ish, you know, millennials slash Gen Z are realizing that. But, but the issue is that meritocracy has been such an influential governing logic in American cultural life for so long, I have no idea what's going to replace it, right? Like it, 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 the idea that the best and the brightest should, one, go to these elite colleges and then implied, two, rule us is I think coming under increasing question uh, in a variety of different spheres from the total collapses of the Afghanistan and Iraq and Libyan invasions to the 2008 uh, Great Recession to the obvious fraud that goes into uh, making these uh, co- the, the college admission scandal to the fact that all of our tech oligarchs seem to have no idea what's going on and constantly sell our data for what reason that it's unclear and, and they're not doing much good for the world I think from a, for a variety of different angles It's becoming increasingly clear to increasingly more people that uh, meritocracy is not real. It's not actually operating in any way that it's purported to to have operated in the past. And a footnote, never really operated in the past in the same way either. But uh, I see no cultural logic that's emerging to replace it. And so I think it'll be a really interesting liminal moment to adopt an academic term (laughs) over the next 10 or 15 years. In particular, what I would want is for – for example, a Congress, a, Democrat, a Democratic small D Congress to actually start regulating these uh, institutes of higher education. For example, is it really OK that all of these Ivy Leagues have enormous endowments that they effectively don't use and just allow and, and just uh, they essentially just sit there and accrue more and uh, more and more wealth? Right. Is it fair that most of these universities haven't really, as far as I'm aware, expanded the absolute numbers of people who have accepted that who uh, attend them in, in, in decades in, in a meaningful way? if you look at my, my guess is if you look at the Princeton class in 1950 and the Princeton class in 2019 the num- the absolute numbers are probably relatively similar mm-hmm. even though a lot more people have entered college and of course the American population has exploded right so I also think that it, it clearly this industry and that's what frankly higher education has become slash maybe to some degree was I do think that it was less of an industry in the past than it is today it certainly is today uh, whether this industry needs to be regulated like many other industries in in our world because you could effectively, I think, and meaningfully think of the Ivy League as a cartel or a monopoly, right, on who gets to enter the American elite, and we maybe need to reconsider whether that's the most uh, effective means to 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 construct the hierarchies that, at least until this point, continue to define our society. Now, like maybe the socialist turn indicates that we don't necessarily want these types of hierarchies, and that is, I think, an important uh, path and 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 qu- a number uh, a lot of questions that raises uh, questions to pursue. Um, but I do think in, in, in the short term, I think there there should be definite discussion. About about regulation of these types of processes going forward.
1: Yeah, I think the um, you know the the sticker price of the the high end universities uh, you know increases it's unconscionable like fifteen to two thousand dollars per year uh, such yeah. that I don't see you know it's gonna it's probably right around the like um, median. Income like household income at this point, and it just like nothing is stopping it. Right. So it seems like the, something right. has to change there. Like it can't keep, uh, I can't keep on going up constantly because wages aren't no. going up constantly. Um, yeah, so and they, haven't
0: in forty years.
1: <laughs> right. Um, you know, I was I was talking to a friend about this, and she said, you know, why doesn't Harvard just admit like everyone who applies, like all one hundred thousand people who apply. Lottery. Um, well, the, so they can't admit everyone who applies for like and have it. You know, all located in Cambridge, like in the current building, So there's that, but also like if they just let everyone in, well then it wouldn't be Harvard. Like Harvard means something. It means you have been chosen. Um, you know the the sorting hat has has cho- has chosen you and put you in the house that that you correctly belong in. And if there was like Harvard online or something that was free and gave you like access to all the same courses and everything, it still would it it wouldn't be the same as like real Harvard where you're hobnobbing with um you know members of the Children of the, the children elite.
0: Children of billionaires. Yeah, yeah. yeah. they children of the elite, effectively. Yeah.
1: Um okay, I think that's that might be enough for <laughs> this this topic. Um do you Don't want to worry. Talk-
0: we'll be hearing more and more about it. I think, as I said to you before we started going, there is nothing that the elite media class in the Boswash corridor cares about more than elite college admissions. Uh, and so especially as the Russian scandal <laughs> fades into the, into the ether, I think <laughs> we'll be treating each new update from this admission scandal like we were treating the sort of every slight update from the Mueller investigation. <laughs> uh, I wouldn't be surprised if this is one story, you know, everyone talks about how stories disappear. I wouldn't be surprised if This is a story that lasts uh, for for quite a while for the next year or two. Yeah,
1: yeah, I think you're you're right about that, and it has so many weird angles to it. I mean, when's when's the last time that like, you know, semi prominent uh, female Hollywood celebrities in middle or late middle age were involved in like criminal conduct? Uh, I I, you know, I can't think of anything right. that, that's coming to mind. Um, so is that any of just all this, the like psychic energy that's devoted among the like upper middle class to university? Yeah, I, I,
0: I mean, you and I are from that world. I I mean, how many conversations did you have growing up about elite colleges it, in the family, outside of the family? It's a truly an obsession. It is truly an obsession. Uh, and, and it's kind of sad because not everyone who goes to an elite college is that happy. You know, let Let me tell you and so you know it, it it's sort of we we've focused on the means to the almost total exclusion of the ends right so what what's the what's the what's the prize of going to harvard working 90 hours a week at goldman sachs in some soulless job you know <laughs> so it's interesting that we focused almost totally on the means and not the ends and it might be time to really Refocus on the ends of, of elite college education uh, and also not only elite college education, I, I would underline, but college education generally. So when I ask my students, why do they go to college? Literally 100 out of 100 answer to get a job. Mm-hmm. To me, that is problematic. Right. The purpose of college, in my ideal opinion, my idealistic opinion would be to learn about the world, to live a better and more fulfilled life. Right. Not necessarily to get an economics degree and then work for McKinsey. So I think maybe if this, if this scandal does actually refocus, refocus or reframe the discussion on, on college itself and the purpose of college, uh, that would be a really useful and helpful thing. So hopefully something positive will come out of this, this scandal.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I'll just throw in my, um, my Ivy League athletics reform proposal, which is have, um, three varsity sports for each, for uh, men and women each. Uh, you know, football, basketball, baseball, soccer, softball, basketball for the women. And that's it. And everything else is a club. And if people want to participate in the club, they can do that. And it'll be a lot less, you know, effort and work. And people can still go to the Harvard-Yale football game, which everyone loves to do. Um, but they, you know, they won't get to go see the, you know, specially picked a polo team playing or the, uh, <laughs> or the divers or whatever, but you know, those people can go to it a big state
0: school that has a huge athletics program or something like that if they if they if that's what they want to do yeah and and athletes should of course be paid i mean it's not even a question that athletes should of course be paid <laughs> yeah yeah
1: so yeah i, I agree with that so, yeah especially the yeah. the
0: the Big, you know, the big game ones um,
1: uh, yeah, involved course. in March Madness yeah. right now. Uh, okay, so do you yeah. want to talk about aesthetics and ideology, and do you want to talk about something sure. else right now?
0: Sure, sure, yeah, we could we could do that. So I, it was just a question that 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 came to me recently with all the discussions over Black Panther surrounding the Oscars and, and Captain Marvel uh, surrounding uh, and surrounding Captain Marvel, which I believe is the first female led Marvel superhero movie. It was just interesting to me how uh, basically large corporations were able to make a lot of hay uh, around both of these, uh, these, you know, basically corporate products, I think regardless of where you stand, I think you have to admit that, you know, these large budgeted corporate projects and we're essentially able to make, uh, t- to make arguments in favor of seeing them based on these particular, uh, liberal, liberal principles. Right. And, and it was really interesting to me how corporations have been able to manipulate people into seeing their products as some sort of radical social action and radical social political action. And so to me, this seems like the ultimate melding of, of capitalism and culture and ideology and culture Uh, in a a very meaningful way and also just to add a quick uh, tangent to that and then we could talk about that for a second but it's also interesting for someone who comes from from, uh, the the, the socialist left how how discussions of other movies for example and and critiques uh, of of, of Roma for example how aesthetics and ideology really came together so to me it's a very interesting question of whether it's possible to make uh, aesthetic judgments without taking ideology into account which is itself that that very claim is itself ideological right could you ever separate Aesthetics from ideology. In some sense, I don't think you ever really can. But in another sense, I think it needs to be possible for us to, uh, for for us on the uh, uh, on the political left, and I would include liberals in this, to be able to make um, aesthetic judgments absent ideology. And I think that a lot of the uh, the, the conversation today is, is moving around these two these two poles, which are variously embedded and imbricated in certain moments and and not. And it just seems to be like a, a really difficult thing uh, to examine. And I was just wondering if you had if you had any thoughts about any of those uh those issues
1: uh yeah there's i mean obviously uh, multiple books could be written on those topics so the you know the comic book um superhero movie is like the dominant um one of the dominant uh like quote unquote art forms of our age like in terms of how much money it makes is certainly um the dominant one and yeah and the um i i saw black panther i liked it a lot i saw um captain marvel i
0: thought it was decent What did what did you like about Black Panther? Um, I thought it looked really cool. Um, it was amazing. It looked amazing.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, the whole, like the Wakanda that created was, was cool. I thought the performances were, well, I thought, um, the lead performance was a little so-so. It was kind of restrained. Um, but the, uh, oh God, his name just went out of my head. Oh, his name is Michael Jordan. Jordan. Um, Michael B. Jordan. Um, who I've followed since he was on the, a child actor on the wire. Um, he was just really great as, as the villain killmonger yeah. and is one of those times when, uh, the villain is more sympathetic than the hero in a movie. Um, you know, the, the superhero movie needs to fit in a certain number of like, you know, notes or whatever, like beats, like, you know, there's going to be a big fight at the end in which like there are multiple fights happening at the same time, but they all coalesce. And like, you know, that the, Hero has to question himself at some point, um, and you know, so Black Panther loses power at one point, and Killmonger becomes uh, the king of Wakanda. Uh, but then uh, Black Panther uh, T'Challa fights his way back and is able to reclaim the kingdom. Um, so there's all that. So all that stuff, you know. At this point, if you make a superhero movie that's just like a good movie, it's like for me, it gets like a boost up in terms of grade because sure. this genre has become like so overstuffed and tired. Um, so yeah, so it was. And, you know, just uh, a superhero movie um, with an almost entirely uh, black cast is not something you see very often. I think there was one or two. I mean, there was Blade in the 90s, but that was pretty much just a black lead. And then there was this weird movie that was called, like, I can't remember what it was called, Nuclear Waste Man or something along those lines from the 90s. <laughs> that was more like a satirical comic book movie that had a black cast. Oh,
0: um, um, something with an M, Meteor Man. Okay, yeah, yeah. Meteor yeah. Man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's um, a good movie. Yeah,
1: <laughs> But, yeah, so this is like, you know, a, a serious comic book movie. And yeah so I I enjoyed it
0: but I, I didn't would... its politics its politics to me seemed so strange so it's representational politics were were of course great you know as you, as you just said in all african american cast and really good performance from from Michael B Jordan um in particular and I and and I also like the woman who played his sister she was like extremely charming and mm-hmm. extremely funny and she was also great on a, a black mirror episode but its politics In other ways were also to me, they read so strange. The fact of basically a neo-monarchy on the one hand, you know, basically a hereditary monarchy as being the uh, you know, the 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 valorized political system. Uh and then even even more than that, because whatever, they they sort of like kind of end that, but also not really at the end. They sort of reaffirm the importance of hereditary monarchy, which is sort of a strange thing for Americans to embrace as progressive, but let's leave that to the side. But the solution to the problems of sort of like global blackness in a sense was to create an international ngo right uh and, and which to me was such a strange neoliberal reactionary turn at the end right instead of doing redistribution of technology to the, to these various oppressed communities the answer was literally to create a a a, a ngo and i believe correct me if i'm wrong but was essentially portrayed as a quote-unquote urban ghetto Right, so that was yeah, the it was so like set was...
1: up in Oakland, I believe. Um, right, which is both the, the place where the director Ryan Coogler is from, and also in the movie, it's like where uh, Killmonger. Was raised because he didn't know that he had royal, you know, royal right. ancestry from from Wakanda. Wakanda, and yeah, Kugler I agree. Also, There's definitely a did neoliberal Fruitvale station,
0: right? Was that? Did, he, did, did Kugler also do Fruitvale Station, which yes. also took place in the Bay Area, yes. right? Which is so that that even and also within that, so the problem of like horrible police violence is an NGO. It just seemed like a very strange political move to be embraced by progressives. I yeah, it's, it's I interesting. Said.
1: I, I saw the, uh, yeah, I saw the critique very similar to yours when the movie came out being like, you know this movie is, is is neoliberal to its core. It's trying. You know there was this uh, special magical place in Africa that was like a hermit kingdom, and they want to like open it up to international markets. Um, so right. it's like send in the IMF like next to uh, to deal with the Wakandan economy. Um, yeah, some things are you know some things are hard to know how to translate into the real world. Like what is the You know, is there a real world analog for, um, vibranium? I think that's what it's called, which is the, uh, magical substance that came from outer space that landed in Wakanda that like gave them the ability to create all this wondrous technology. Some people said that that was an analog for like, um, black creativity that is often co-opted by, uh, white people in the West and lets them, you know, take ownership of rock and roll when they didn't have the, the actual ability to do it by themselves. Um, but then, you know, they can't have the, like, just in terms of the marvel cinematic universe they can't have everyone being as advanced as wakanda because then like uh you know how is like ant-man gonna like be able to go off and solve his own problems in the like the third ant-man movie so they're constrained by by some
0: by the, the need to sell things in the future yeah they have to
1: keep these things going and did you right. see the latest avengers movie
0: uh, no, but I've read 5,000 articles about it, so yes.
1: Okay, so spoiler alert for anyone who hasn't seen it yet, um, half the characters die at the end, right. and, and they they're going to turn, gonna come turn back into dust. The next one. Here. um, yeah. and including Black Panther, and then you're shocked, but then you think, wait a second, Black Panther made a billion dollars worldwide, they're not going to kill him off, like at the end of the Avengers movie, of course he's going to come back to life, and that that is actually a key part of uh the comic book heritage, is that characters die, and then they... Are resurrected and come right. back to life and the things get rebooted constantly and reinvented and um, you know it, it right. like... Crisis
0: of Infinite Earths is the famous and I think the best one of these stories it still holds up I think really well Actually, if you've ever read Crisis.
1: No, I was more of a Marvel guy uh, in, in my youth. You should read it.
0: It's really good. It's really good.
1: <laughs> right. So, yes, that one was uh, famously, DC, maybe not yeah. famously, the DC universe had all these different, because it was so convoluted, and they didn't intend it to be a shared universe, originally had all these different versions of all these different characters. And it was like, how are they going to all come together to make sense in the end? And uh, Supergirl died or something. I, I can't remember exactly what happened. Um. <laughs> so, so, yeah. So, I think it's, I mean, but it is, I did just one more note is that, you know, as someone who grew up in the nineties reading comic books, you know, um, they were not a cool thing to be reading. <laughs> and all of these characters that are in the movies now are invented in the, uh, early sixties by Stanley and Jack Kirby and Steve Ditko. And they were essentially like, you know, at the time they were like, this is garbage for children. Like the equivalent of like, you know, Grimace and the Hamburglar or something, you know, there's like, the kids can enjoy it, but like, you know, it's, it's essentially just trash. And, and now that the the fact that it is a, you know, like Colossus, uh, bestriding the pop culture world is like crazy. <laughs> and, um, uh, I don't know what that says about, <laughs> if that's, has something to do about neoliberalism, I guess it has something to do with like, um, you know, intellectual property rights. and the fact that Marvel, um, you know, it still it all these characters that a couple <laughs> a couple Jews invented in New York City in the Well, early 60s. It's, it's
0: directly connected to neoliberalism in the sense of an open global market, right? Which is, which is probably the most transformational thing to happen to Hollywood in decades. In the last, you know, 15 or 20 years, these the sort of expansion of this global market and uh, the need to create, these are essentially mythic characters, are very easily translatable into other contexts, right? You know, they're very simple, they have very clear motivations, etc., uh, etc. Cetera, et cetera. But to me, the question is, is, yeah, uh, there's is a, a, c- whether...
1: There's a sorry, scene uh, in Black Panther that takes place in in South Korea, I believe. Uh, It could take place anywhere, but I assume South Korea is like a market that Marvel wants to target. So they'll they'll set 20 minutes in an action scene uh, in South Korea.
0: And the Dark Knight also, they went to somewhere, Tokyo or China at some point, uh, you know, similar. It's it's like uh, also very clear. But the question to me is that, uh, I guess there's two questions. It's one is whether these large corporate properties are able to be real instantiations of the progressive politics. And two, if, if let's say we decide that they're not, how come they're viewed as being an instantiation of progressive politics. And what does that say about the, the sort of limitations of contemporary, uh, not, not neoliberalism, but liberalism as a political philosophy. And just to relate to this, to bring in Captain Marvel, it's a totally militaristic movie, you know, in, in a very, very clear sense. And I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, but didn't the air force actually have a hand in, in sponsoring it or in some, in some I meaningful think they worked, way? They wor- sh- yeah. It, I think
1: they worked like hand in hand with the air force and were able to film on a base or something that was an unusual arrangement um, because like the right. char- so, the character so, was a test, like a fighter test pilot. And... Right.
0: So, so basically, we have an instantiation of something that's supposed to be a contemporary, a contemporary representation of progressive feminist politics, which is totally embedded in basically in a militaristic American empire. Right. And and to me, those are almost fundamentally intentions. So, what does that say about the fact that so many contemporary liberals have embraced? Let's just say Captain Marvel as, as, a, as a true instantiation of, of, of a feminist politics, or to, to be maybe complicate it a bit more, is it possible to have it be a true instantiation of feminist politics, you know, where, where a female lead is really saving the day is the most powerful person in the universe, act, 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 while also supporting American empire? Right. And what does that say about the embeddedness of these two philosophies or maybe that they're just riding on different tracks and don't intersect? To me, it seems like her femininity was actually directly related to the militarism, right? That, that she was shown as being like very beautiful and, and very attractive while in these sort of like hyper aerodynamic planes that are ultimately designed to kill people. <laughs> to me, that is, is that is something that is fundamentally intentioned and again, raises interesting questions about the confusions or tensions inherent in modern liberalism.
1: Yeah. It's interesting. Um, the, the movie, um, it was, so I would give it like a solid B slash B plus it was fine superhero movie, you know, check the boxes, had some funny parts, looked cool. Um, I like, you know, Brie Larson was, was good. The, um, Samuel Jackson, uh, CGI de-aged was good. The cat, I like the cat character. Um, but you know, if the, the fact that it was the first female character lead in the Marvel cinematic universe, uh, you know, was interesting. And I think the, like the representation thing like clearly matters to regular people who like uh young women who are dragged with, by their boyfriends to see the movies or whatever, or see it freely on their own. And they're so, you know, the, it's heavily, the deck is heavily stacked against um women with very few female superheroes and no lead characters until now. So I can see how that's just like, they want to see a, a woman on screen, you know, kicking, kicking alien butt. Um, that that makes sense to me. Um, I, I think I, I actually think the the movie did not have very strong feminist themes when compared to um, Wonder Woman, which I liked a lot more. Um, and had a you know the 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 core of the movie was the feminist was this idea that she, she's from an island of of like warrior women who um, and she comes through the world of men and sees all the ways that men have fucked it up. Um, and reacts to the like awfulness of the world in the way that like a uh, an out like a pure outsider would would react to it and then she like try she like wants to end war entirely um so i I think that movie had a much more like interesting ideological vision than the Captain Marvel movie, which I thought really played down a lot of the feminist themes there were there were a couple that you know there were some moments where 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 someone' was, like Treats her just like dismissively because she's a woman, but um, it's not, you know, it's it's not the central part of the movie. I think, and and the the character, just as a side note, originally this character was a man in the comic books, and then they they kind of combined it with another character called Mrs. Marvel. There was Captain Marvel, Mrs. Marvel, then Mrs. Marvel became Captain Marvel or something like that, and so it's a reboot, and so the core of the character is not she's a woman in the way that Wonder Woman is. Um, Like the core of the character was like. She has an alien and she's an alien and she can blast lights from her, you know, energy from her fists or whatever.
0: But you know what unites both Wonder Woman and Captain Marvel is their complete denial of empire. Right, what was World War I but a fight between empires, the British Empire, the French Empire, the German Empire, and the Ottoman Empire, and what is the, the American Air Force but the latest instantiation of a globe-spanning American Empire. <laughs> so I think both movies, in some very meaningful sense, totally ignore the realities of empire and what it means for global northern or North Atlantic or Western dominance of the world, right? which I think just reflects the larger ro- col- cultural invisibility of empire as perhaps the most important problem of American global politics in the 20th and 21st centuries right so that unites so even though wonder woman did have sort of these individualizing feminist themes and essentially correct me if i'm wrong but when i when i i've only seen parts of it but it seems that it it presents war as a problem of of man or patriarchy right which is you know fine i'm fine with that critique of war sure i think that's definitely you know there's definitely true elements uh there but you know it has nothing to say about empire whatsoever uh, and 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 this is to me a little problematic when we live in a country that has 800 bases abroad, right? Has all of these aircraft carriers, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Right. So okay, well, let me, was, let me let yeah.
1: me. I, I actually just remember something that I'm stealing. Sure, this, yeah. I'm stealing this from a Slate spoiler special that I listened to about Captain Marvel, which is uh, uh, someone. You know, the the movie could be described as um, a white woman realizing that she's a colonizer. Um, because, you know, there's this other plot line, there's all this stuff that happens on Earth, but there's this other plot line with the Kree versus Skrull intergalactic war, and the Kree Empire is, um, you know, at first seems like this, like, uh, you know, sort of like, uh, Jordan Peterson's perfect <laughs> universe, because they use logic, they, like, the, it's ruled by an artificial intelligence that logic always... And reason. Yeah, yeah, always comes up with the, with the correct answer, and so there's like a supercomputer is like the king of this universe, and... And they're like fighting the scrolls on like the outlying territories and stuff. Um, and then she, so then she comes to earth and there's, you know, spoiler alert, like she seems at first like she's an alien, really she's a human, uh, with like alien blood in her that gives her powers. But she comes to realize that, oh, the Kree, she, you know, she thought she was a Kree. She comes to realize, oh, the Kree are the bad guys and the scrolls are just like innocent refugees essentially. Um, so there's this plotline that does seem fairly similar to, or to – it seems intended to make one think of the fact that there are refugees on the southern U.S. border um, who are trying to escape violence and, you know, which which side are we on? And the fact that you think – as far as I know – so in the comics, the Skrulls are like a character There were – this race of shape-shifting green aliens that were introduced very early on in the 60s and they were always like the bad guys. So the fact that it turns out that the Kree are the bad guys and the Skrull are like innocent bystanders of Kree expansionism throughout the universe and the, and the planets um, – was you know is is definitely a good twist. Um, so there is that. Sure,
0: sure. But then, so you have the tension then of the iconography of American empire and particularly American technological empire, particularly drones, you know, and and, and ships but, uh, uneasily coexisting with this larger sort of anti-imperial message, which is also something that goes back as far as Star Wars, right? Like at the very moment of American, you know, American height of global power in the, you know, in the post-World War II period, we have this movie that valorizes rebels, right? And so there's, there's again, the Americans want to imagine themselves as people who are actually anti-imperialists when they basically, uh, I think essentially unknowingly, um, rule the largest empire in the history of humankind, right? Which again, also portrays, some very problematic messages about uh, contemporary liberalism that, that, that valorizes uh, ca- uh, Captain Marvel as this progressive political thing.
1: Yeah, And I think either, I think George Lucas said either for the original Star Wars or maybe just for Return of the Jedi that he was thinking of the Vietnam war and how, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the Viet Cong were able to uh, defeat the American empire the way that like the, um, the Ewoks are able to defeat uh, the giant machines of, of the, uh, the Galactic Empire, um, which is
0: of source incredibly problematic, because that totally other. I mean, the Ewoks are literally little, tiny others, right. right? Who have a quote unquote primitive society, but who are nonetheless, through this sort of pluck, able. Oh, well, really, with the help of white people, are able right, to right. Uh, overcome the empire, right? So that's a very at best. Old, yeah, that's
1: the, the problem you run into whenever you try to do any sort of like um, metaphor or analog involving aliens, <laughs> comparing them right. to like different groups of humans. Uh, you can very easily run, run into trouble. Um, but yeah, it, it's I I think in um, I think in Captain Marvel there is a hidden like anti-imperialist um, message there. Um, if people
0: if oh, people co-exists. want to take it. Right, I mean, this is the, this is what's interesting about it as a cultural product: the anti-imperialist message coexists with this very pro-imperialist message, right? With you again using the iconography of American empire, right? And that's an interesting cultural product, right, which reflects the very tensions of an age in which the American empire is is, is relatively declining, right? right. And I mean, well, do you think the there's My, my
1: cat clear. is making a cameo once again. Um, do you think there could Hello, be kitty. a um, a superhero movie that was like critical of American empire, or has one been? Has one existed already? Like, could such a thing oh, ever be I-
0: made? I think that is basically impossible as long as these movies are made by enormous multinational faceless corporations you know it's very unlikely that a Marvel is ever going to be able to have a true progressive politics which is ultimately my critique of a lot of the 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 arguments that these are, are, are uh, quote unquote progressive and again then they are really in a representational sense that is a progressive politics and I don't want to want it to, to deny that but I think like the, the, the limits of that is shown in these very movies right where, where there is you know these large corporations claiming that paying whatever, $15 to see it opening night is a progressive move. That just isn't. You know, there's no way that that could be framed as as a progressive move. Um, so then again, these are the tensions in, inherent in it where, where you do have a, uh, a largely, if not totally African-American cast and the role that Martin Freeman played in Black Panther is also something interesting to investigate uh, at a bit more depth or, or in the case of Captain Marvel, a female-led movie, which is in some real sense, a progressive tie to this hyper-capitalist hyper, uh, imperialist in most cases, uh, politics.
1: Yeah. And you know, there's, there's a trend of, um, trying to, of companies trying to place their products or or market their products as, um, progressive or woke in some way, you know, the Gillette ad was the last big, uh, one of those, um, and there was the, um, disastrous, uh, Pepsi ad with one of the Jenner children. Yeah. Kylie uh, Jenner, yeah. With that weird protest, um, which everyone hated, but the Gillette – I don't, well, we'll have to, I don't know. I we'll wanted to see what, whether, um, Gillette sales went up or down after that one. But, and you, so you risk, um, pissing off, if, if, it, if the progressivism is too overt, you miss pissing off the conservatives who, um, spending, spend money as, Progressives do and constitute, you know, 30 to 40% of the American public. Um, so then if the theme is sublimated, like the hidden anti-imperial theme, possibly in uh, in Captain Marvel, then, you know, maybe the conservatives don't get riled up about it. Although there was this weird controversy about something Brie Larson said that pissed off the kind of like game gate for comic book movies people. Um, and... But and but then the you know the, the sometimes controversy is good and if everyone's talking about something then maybe it makes people want to go out and spend their spend their money but yeah I think any time some a corporation that wants us to, to buy their product and spend money is trying to say they're doing something uh, good for the world or uh, good for uh, some political movement we should be very skeptical
0: um, about that and um, yeah essentially corporate progressivism is in some sense an oxymoron. Right. And, and I would like more discussion on sort of the liberal side when they, when they praise the representational politics, it'd be more interesting, frankly, in the latest issue of Slate or wherever, if they actually investigated the tensions in the movie. Right. That, that is actually a more interesting critical take to, to, to take. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that would, that would, I think, improve the discourse of liberal criticism, which to me has, has somewhat descended into cheerleading of corporate products, which again, Whatever, you know, you feel free to do that. It's just not particularly interesting.
1: Yeah, there's a lot of, you know, you can make, you can write a blog post very quickly about either, uh, you know, this, hooray for this because it's woke or boo for this because it's not woke. And I assume they do it because people click and read on it because that's what they, that kind of like, I don't know, it's it's a tribal kind of thinking, Um, you know, gets... You know, gets the, the, the ad rates, uh, up a little bit or something, or something like that. So yeah, there's no, um, well, we know there's no ethical consumption under capitalism. Um, okay, do you <laughs> okay. So on that note, yeah. Uh, yeah, that's, that, so that's a good place to that topic. Why don't we do one more topic? Uh, do you want to talk sure. generations? Do you want to talk Bernie bros? What do you think?
0: Whatever. I'll let you decide. Spin that wheel. Spin okay, that well, so,
1: wheel. Okay. Let's skip generations because I've, maybe we do that another time. Um, let's go Perfect. to. Uh, uh, politics. Bernie Sanders. Bernie Bros. I guess. Uh, nope. So, I, <laughs> so I'm guessing, um, you are a you are supporting. Uh, you are feeling the burn once again and supporting Bernie Sanders in in the yes.
0: Okay. Yes, so wh- I, I am. I am feeling the burn.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so what? Yeah. Okay. So first of all, how do you think like things have rolled out in the like
0: past two or three months when when almost all these candidates have have declared in particular what, for Bernie? What, what, it's very interesting to me because I, I, it seems to me that that of all the candidates, Bernie clearly has the most support. But if you read the media it, or or go on Twitter, um, it doesn't appear that that's the case. So I tell me if I'm wrong, but the poll seems to repeatedly show Biden number one basically at like 27% or something, and Bernie number two at 20%, and then Kamala Harris at like 11% or whatever, yeah. and then down, down and down and down and down. But that is not the conversation that is have uh, being had in, in elite media spheres. Uh, or or, or tell, tell me if you think I'm wrong, but that's my sense from being on Twitter and, and reading all, all, all these articles. So, so to me, that's something strange that people seem to be denying, you know, the obviously empirical reality, empirical so far as it goes, of, of Bernie's obviously um, – mass appeal but uh, uh, but with uh, but despite that I, I mean i think he's doing really well i i don't think he's had uh, any serious missteps he's made a lot of i think really clever hires not only good hires but clever hires particularly hiring hiring many women of color to serve as, sur- as surrogates for him because that, that was obviously a big thing in the past also making foreign policy if not a central issue a, a very serious issue having matt dust who is, you know, uh, who, uh, you'll be uh, unsurprised to learn. I agree with, uh, you know, basically about everything, mm-hmm. former blocking heads guy. Uh, so I think he's made uh, made a lot of good hires and he just seems to be setting up the institutional base to, to actually perhaps uh, win this thing. And I, I uh, personally, I don't think Biden is that much of a, of a threat, uh, as many people claim. I think, you know, he announces that uh, if I were conducting an oppo ad, I'd have an ad. It would be a minute. It would be 20 seconds of him yelling at Anita Hill. 20 seconds of him calling African American super predator children super predators in the 90s or whatever racist phrase he used, and then 20 minutes uh, I believe of him you know having uh, questionable opinions of abortion in the 1970s. So I think Biden will actually be pretty uh, kneecapped fairly quickly in this electoral context, and that Bernie will will hopefully at least hopefully for me uh, rise to the top. Um, but this isn't really how it's being discussed, which to me is somewhat odd.
1: Yeah, so I guess um, probably part of it is. You know, um, people in the elite media are not, not predis- predisposed to right. uh, like Bernie socialism, so that's probably p- plays a role. There's the like, um, you know, the newness of, uh, Harris, Warren, blah, 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 uh, uh, Beto, that, that irresistible man, um, Pete Buttigieg or whatever you say his name, um, all those people. So it's like, who are these people? What do they, what do they stand for? Um, you know, talking about that. And, yeah, but on the, on the other side, the polls consistently show Biden in the lead, Bernie in second place, and then you, yeah, sometimes Harris, sometimes Warren in third, and then a bunch of other things. So, you know, like, like, people who talk about politics on Twitter, people who are watching Blocking Ads or listening to it, uh, are like the super fans of politics. And, like, we really think about politics a lot, and, uh, like, in our free time, <laughs> consume political chatter. Um, the average American does not do that. They, um, are, like, trying to, like, pick up their kids from school and make dinner in time, blah, blah, blah. Uh, yeah, so their lives are busy, and they are not, like, tuned in yet, probably at all. So everyone knows who Joe Biden was. He was vice president. People remember right. Bernie because he ran last time and came in second. And then –
0: That those are the people who came in second out of two
1: (laughs) right well you're forgetting martin o'malley and those other guys he
0: dropped out fairly okay yeah
1: um so i'm an o'malley man (laughs) so so yeah so there's just the name recognition factor i think is probably part of it for biden especially it's just like yeah biden i remember him he seemed he was always smiling and uh you know he's friends with barack obama i like barack obama i so yeah and we you know he has all these potential weaknesses you you discussed uh he has, certainly has the longest like record in politics of of any of them and uh yeah stuff related to the tough on crime 80s and 90s and i don't know yeah he, he just seems out of step i mean he, he's old but bernie is old as well uh he, but biden seems more out of step with what the base wants which is not like a politician who can go like have a like whiskey with mitch mcconnell and and hammer out some kind of deal like the like the base wants like a steamroller who who can uh, destroy these these evil evil people in the in the GOP. So yeah, so I don't I don't know. So I I, I won't predict, but it does seem like Biden would get savaged because everyone would, he would be the front runner. Everyone would be aiming
0: at him. And well, he also you know did horrible things. It's it's not just horse race, right? Like right. Biden, you know, if you're racist, that's a problem. You know, if at some point you think women shouldn't have been able to 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 decide whether they wanted to get an abortion, that's a problem. If you yell at Anita Hill for being, uh, you know, for for whatever the horribly mis uh, um, sexist things that he did, that's a problem. So it's not just that. I mean, I think it's also important to highlight like these things matter in in like a real political sense beyond the horse race, right? Mm-hmm. These, these are problems and they should be problems. So that's a good thing if he gets attacked. <laughs> you know and yeah, i'm, in not, saying these attack. Attack. I'm yes. not
1: saying these would be uh, you know unfair attacks like if they're using old clips of him this is right. not like soft mode <laughs> or, or something Right. and For sure. i think there's you know i also kind of feel like like in in 2016 like everyone was just like okay hillary's going to win like we all know like in the end hillary's going to win so i feel like, like did bernie really get a complete vetting and really have to like hold up under the pressure uh for real like i i kind of think he didn't and so we'll have to see if he can do it again and like i said he's like how old is he now he's like 75 or something
0: no i think he's older i think he's 77 i think he's either 77 or 78 or would be 78 or 79 when he assumed office but i think bernie's baggage is going to be like weird left-wing things you know it's not going to be racism it's not going to be sexism it's not going to be anti-abortion politics it's going to be like he might have said something like pro-Soviet in 1984, right? So I also think the potential baggage there, barring some massive scandal, which, you know, it's probably not going to happen. I think that would have been revealed. I don't think there's probably that much baggage to actually reveal that would affect him in this primary. Well, right? I, have to see. You know, I mean,
1: if, if- – Let's say Biden is running ads against Bernie, showing Bernie saying nice things about Fidel Castro in in you know nineteen eighty four. Well I've, I but mean, well, this is a, like people like you and me don't thing, care. Right? But like the you know, who's well, voting in these so primaries, there's still a lot of I'm, I'm older take Democrats.
0: Aziz Rada Aziz wrote a brilliant essay for M plus one and I think this is truly the first post Cold War election in that a lot of the idea for a variety of reasons, most importantly because millennials who are now like forty <laughs> uh, or, or, or Gen Z who are like 22, like they're they're a, a huge voting block, right? And their their politics is not nearly as inflected by the anxieties of the Cold War, right? So I think we're going to see in 2020 being the first truly post Cold War politics, and it only doesn't appear that way again because the leadership class is so old. In this country and the corporate class is so old, literally people in their sixties and seventies that they're still pretending like it's 1985 because their ideologies were shaped by that. But I don't think it is actually maybe for the first time 1985 any longer. And so I think that a lot of these quote-unquote rules or third rails you see it with El han Omar and the Israel Palestine stuff are not actually third rails because you have at this point again millennials are almost 40 generations of people who don't care about these things in the same way that the leadership class does or assumes that people do. Yeah, I So th- I don't think people give a shit if Bernie said something nice about Fidel Castro in 1978. Yeah, I don't so, think
1: So care. that yeah, I agree that that kind of attack if it comes is would be less um you know less potent than it would uh in the 2008 election or something and actually you know I was I'm actually reading um Joan Didion's book After Henry which is kind of like uh includes uh, essays about the uh, Reagan and George H W Bush administrations and uh, there's a disturbing number of names that of people
0: who, who right. were doing things in 1984 and 88 who are still around and still doing things. And so can I just make a cultural argument? And I'm curious what you think of this. Tell me if you think this is ridiculous. I think one of the major reasons that we have such a, a, a an old leadership class is that culturally in this country, we don't have a way to discuss death or what it means to have a good dotage. So you have people who just literally work until they, they drop dead. It, you know it, it, you have the orrin hatches of the world the mitch mcconnell's and nancy pelosi's and diane feinstein's right and like frankly aria i don't know that i would want to be 83 and being yelled at on fox news all day <laughs> right so i mean i think were this is culturally determined to me that's a very uniquely and peculiar post-world war ii american cultural phenomenon where we just don't talk about death you know that it's just yeah like, it's a, yeah well
1: about, okay, i think you know, um I think yeah, that's that's interesting. I mean, I think um, you know most modern cultures in which like death is like segmented away from from most of life um, probably have something similar. Um, But yeah, it's like like yeah, why is Orrin Hatch still in office? He seems like he's lapsing into senility. Why does he still want this job? Like, why does does he still
0: want it? It's
1: it it, doesn't like it doesn't seem like a very fun job. Also, like I guess he gets a boss horrible. Like you, you have power and you get to boss people around and like go on television, but also it's just really boring. You're traveling all the time. Uh, I don't need to wear a suit all the time. It's not very appealing to me at least. So yeah, so why don't, yeah, I don't know why some of these people can't just shuffle off and go live out in the retirement community or something
0: either. Um, you know, or take a different role in politics. Like no one wants to say wisdom doesn't matter, right? But at some point th- this world is not your world any longer. Right. And we have no good way to discuss this. Let's, let's say climate change is as terrible as everything everyone seems to say it is. And I, and I think that is, that is, that is probably a, a significant possibility. Then this is actually extremely problematic, you know, that, that we have these people shaped in a totally different world that is no longer the world that exists, making our political decisions. Like, and you saw with like Dianne Feinstein yelling at those little kids, right? It's just like a different world and we have no way culturally to really discuss that.
1: Yeah, I think um yeah, it, we are it, like if you the average age of people in the US Senate has to be like 60 <laughs> around there maybe even older. And the
0: Democrats are older than the Republicans, I believe.
1: Um so, you know, a, a class of like younger people was ushered in in this past election um and you know, I like I wonder um if um AOC want like does she want to be in government for life like does she want to like does she, would oh um, but she has a safe right. seat like she could probably stay right. there as long as she wanted because some of these people you know are in the house of representatives for 30 years does she want to right. challenge Chuck Schumer does she want to just, like she's 28 years old so she want to just do something else with her life
0: well, this is also really interesting to me and another cultural cultural issue that I think is really important. I want to write something about this one day, but I think it's really interesting. I don't think people like Ilhan Omar or AOC or Tlaib or sort of the new class uh, of young democratic, uh, uh, many, many of whom are women of color. I don't think, for example, that AOC wants to become a lobbyist, right? Maybe she does want to be a politician, but I'm pretty sure that her and Omar don't want to become lobbyists, right? And yeah. that cultural change actually has the potential to have an enormous effect on what policies and politics are passed, right? If you don't want to become a tobacco lawyer or whatever it may be after you after you leave or after you're voted out of the House of Representatives, that totally changes the types of policies that you're willing to endorse. And I think this, this is an enormous cultural shift, also a cultural shift in how we understand the meaning of work, you know, and what we what we understand the good life to be. That will have a long-term effect on the types of politics that are that are played out in the future. And it's difficult to get a sense of that again because so many of the leadership classes literally just they're, they're so old. They're so septoagenarians and octogenarians that it's hard to get a sense of of how this enormous shift in what it means to live a good life will affect American politics.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. If we're still around, we'll see how it plays out. And yeah, I hope AOC is not, you know, in the Senate until she's 85 years old. I hope she goes, goes, and does something else because how, you know, I mean, she's obviously become a like very, very prominent and possibly effective house member. Maybe the most, you know, most, Powerful without actually holding real power uh, house member in, in a long time. But,
0: you know, well, she uh, holds this. Discur- this is culturally determined. She holds enormous discursive power. She's right. changing the way politics is talked about. Which is one of the first step on actually changing the way politics is done. You know, if you look at libertarians or people on the right in the 60s and the 70s, one of the most important things was changing the Overton window, which is really just changing the way politics is discussed. So AOC, I think, does it, maybe the most powerful person in the country because she's totally – she's totally uh, – she's forming a totally new discursive politics that we don't know the effect – of which we don't know what the effects will be going forward. So I do think, you know, she's, she's not able to, you know – Send troops to Yemen uh, or take troops to, uh, from back from Yemen, as the case may probably be. But she is able to change the way we talk about politics because she's basically speaking for a generation that has been ignored for for far too long, for a generation that shouldn't have been ignored as much as it is. And just to, to, to take a point, so I studied the Rand Corporation, one of the most important think tanks. The, one of the first founders of the Rand Corporation, I think the first president was 38. You know, could you imagine that happening today? So this has not always been the way that politics is done, right? Politics has not always been something for people in their 50s and above. In the United States' context, it has been for younger people. And we might be seeing that sort of generational shift happening right now, kind of in real time.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think it's it's aligned with this um, you know shift on the right of making young people millennials, Gen Zers, like the enemy. Um, instead of like right. you know the new Black Panther Party or you know whatever right. people are concerned about on the right um during obama 's presidency, like <clears throat> you know there 's people who you know uh, uh, fox News on any night will have like a uh, like kooky college student does weird things right um that that kind and, of thing and, and is just... is like teaching the old people who watch who watch Fox News that like the young generation is insane and hes needs to be like you
0: yeah know, i don 't even know and what it, like, and like it's put great in a that. And it's great that people like Jonathan Chade have aided them in that effort. That's been a really good job. Really good thing. <laughs>
1: right. About. So he wrote, he wrote a piece about, um, uh, political correctness on college campuses that came out about five that's years great. ago and
0: was, that, so, that's the most important problem in, in American society, <laughs> political correctness on college campuses. Great.
1: Okay. So why don't, <laughs> let's just very briefly, one more question. Um, sure. Do, bro,
0: do Bernie bros exist? And if so, are you one of them? Um, I think there are people who have a class first politics. Um, and I believe that that view uh, is what people mean when they say Bernie. I mean, if we're going to take it seriously and not just take it as a slander that like People are yelling at at, at at other people for voting for Bernie. Fine. If we're going to take it seriously, I think the, the real critique is that people who 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 center class to the exclusion of other concerns in American society. Uh, so if that's a sense, no, I think that that idea uh issues of identity, particularly issues of race, gender and sexuality, clearly have independent calls of forces on people's life paths. Um, so I think if, if, if that's what you mean by Bernie bro, I'm certainly not a Bernie bro. But if what you mean by Bernie bro is that I think Bernie Sanders, uh, someone who has been remarkably consistent in his political vision for at this point decades, if I believe that he has the best vision both domestically and in terms of foreign policy for the United States, uh, then I would say that that yes, I, I agree with that position. But I think that Bernie himself isn't a Bernie bro. I think that Bernie has made – Really important efforts. Uh, he's he's I mean, I think he's actually a good political leader because I think he actually learns from critique. He doesn't just try to, like, paper over it with nonsense. I think he's made real efforts to incorporate issues of race uh, gender and sexuality into what had been, uh, in his previous incanta- uh, incarnations. I wouldn't even necessarily say in 2016, but certainly in the eighties and the nineties and the two thousands, he focused more on class. I think he's incorporated these other sorts of issues into his campaign. Uh, so, uh, I would say that Bernie uh, is not a Bernie bro. Uh, I am not a Bernie bro. <laughs> and I would say the overwhelming majority of people who support him, uh, are, are not, uh, are not Bernie bros. Now, this is not to say that I think class needs to be one of the central elements of any politics going forward. It's it's clearly crucial. But also race, gender and sexuality, again, do exert independent causal forces on people's lives. And of course, we all know intersexuality. These things are not necessarily independent, but they all work together. And I think Bernie is very, very uh, aware of this issue, particularly in a country that has uh, that is basically founded on the twin crimes of native genocide and and, and slavery of, of enslaved Africans.
1: Okay. Um. Yeah. I. What. Yeah. Whether. So. You're. Actually, the interpretation of Bernie Bro as being like a. I don't know, like a, like a strict Marxist or something someone who was only concerned about the class struggle and not about uh, these other issues that maybe sees like the, the you know the racial struggle as like a false consciousness consciousness kind of thing um, that like once the, the class struggle is solved um, the race stuff will, will fade away um, I actually hadn't heard that interpretation I guess that the Bernie bro that you know is the one that, it's like anonymous Twitter account type people who are going after, you know, Jill Filipovic or um, oh, uh, who care? Know. I mean, like, and and this, this? and then Jill I Filipovic, mean... who is like a, I think she writes for the Guardian or something, Um and you know, a bunch of uh, jerky guys are like sending her nasty things over Twitter, yeah, and no, then so one then one shouldn't
0: do that. You so then she says something or Twitter. writes a
1: call yeah, about it, just... and then everyday people who aren't on Twitter read it and they think, oh, these. Bernie Sanders supporters, they're just going around harassing women. So that's kind of, that's kind of like the, uh, the dynamic that I, that I was thinking of.
0: I mean, I'm sure that does exist. I would, I would just urge my fellow Bernie supporters not to do things like that. I <laughs> uh, don't think that does the cause, uh, any, 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 any good, but I would also uh, urge people like Jill Filipovic not to make those sorts of, you know, you know, issues the center of your politics i mean if you have a voice at the guardian you shouldn't be wasting column spaces again on getting yelled at on twitter that's not the most important political issue uh of our age and and just to, to go back you said Marxism? I would say that's a vulgar Marxist interpretation. There are many very sophisticated Marxist theorists, particularly the theorists of the Frankfurt School and Antonio Gramsci who understood that everything could not be reduced to a materialist class politics. And if uh, again to the to the Bernie Bros who do have basically a, a class first politics, I would also urge you to read the emendations to Marxist theory that have occurred in the 150 years since Marx's death. <laughs>
1: Okay. And you know, did you, you probably knew this, but did you know that, uh, Mayor Pete's father was the translator of Gramsci's prison diaries into English? I
0: did know that. Yeah. Actually, that's how I knew the name. I'm like, how do I know this name? <laughs> and it's because of the, I've read the prison diaries translation. Right. And actually, I would just underline read, read your Gramsci, read <laughs> Gramsci on hegemony. If you use that to augment your Marxism, you can't just read the communist manifesto. You can't just read capital. You got to read Gramsci really critical uh
1: okay everyone has their uh, reading list (laughs) out there uh (laughs) by professor besner um okay so why don't we wrap it up there um so you are on twitter what is your twitter handle
0: Uh, d besner
1: d besner uh mine is a-r-y-e-h-c-w um so uh daniel thanks for coming on and thanks to all of our viewers and listeners we'll see you again next time Before you go, a quick message from the suits of Bloggingheads TV. Blogging Heads will always be free for you to watch and listen to, and we don't even go the NPR route of guilting you into donating during Pledge Week. But we do have a small request. If you enjoy Bloggingheads programming, rate and review us on iTunes. The iTunes algorithm weighs positive reviews heavily, so taking a few minutes to rate and review us will help more people find out about our shows. Also, of course, we encourage you to subscribe to our Twitter and Facebook feeds. Thank you.